I'm reading from Genesis chapter 27, and that is on page 19 in the Church Bibles. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his oldest son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies." Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her oldest son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognise him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May may nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. 
He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When I was at Bible college, I was always on the lookout for places that would give cheap haircuts but do a really good job of them. Most of the time I'd get Kathy, um, my wife, she'd be happy to cut my hair most of the time, but occasionally something would go wrong and she'd say, that's it, you're on your own, I'm not doing it anymore. And so I'd have to go and find a hairdresser. And so one day when my friend told me about a place that did great haircuts for just $10, I was pretty excited. He said he went there every, every single time and his hair always looked great. And so I got the address and I headed there. But about a minute into the haircut, I had that feeling that maybe I wasn't going to have quite the same experience that my friend had had. Now, occasionally when Kathy's cutting my hair, she'll say, whoops. But I'm kind of okay with that because it always seems to turn out all right in the end and it's not as bad as what my sister used to do, which was cut my ear. But this hairdresser, this hairdresser started saying, oh, ah, mm, oh dear. And so I was starting to feel pretty nervous. And so after a couple of minutes of this, I, I sort of felt like I should say, is everything okay back there? And she said, no, your hair's not straight enough. Now, I was pretty confused by this question because I, I feel like my hair's pretty straight. But it turns out this lady had only been in Australia for one day and she'd, only, she'd never actually cut Caucasian hair before. And in the end, after what felt like forever, I left that place with the worst haircut you could ever imagine. I'm not joking. I was walking down the street, desperately trying not to meet someone that I knew. Small children were crying in their mother's arms. And when I got home, once Kathy finally stopped laughing at the long bits hanging over the short hacked bits, she had to redo the entire haircut. I had such high expectations, but what was delivered was horrible. Well, today, as Jane has told us, we're coming back to a series about the origins of God's people. We're jumping back in history 
nearly 4,000 years to the book of Genesis to a people that God called to belong to him. Out of all the world, God chooses one family to work through. Now, it seems to me that it would be pretty natural for us to have high expectations of this family. I mean, what kind of people would God choose to be his own people? What kind of people would God choose to work through, to heal his world? Surely they've got to be some pretty special people. But if you were here last holidays, when we last started this series with Abraham, I'm guessing that you've already had that moment where you start to feel that maybe your high high expectations are going to be disappointed. Maybe things aren't going to be as pretty as you hoped they would be. Well, today, it just gets worse. We've got Abraham's son, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca. We've got their children, Jacob and Esau, And they seem like the most unlikely people ever that God would choose to work through. They're not pretty. In many ways, they're horrible. But thankfully, we're not in the hands of an inexperienced hairdresser. God's used to working with some pretty hairy material. We're in the hands of an artist, a master who patiently shapes a people over years and over generations. Over these next three weeks of the school holidays, we're going to see how God works in Jacob's life to shape him in order to shape a people. Now, it takes a long time and and sometimes it feels like Jacob's just never going to get there. But in the end, God changes him. And through him and his family, God continues to unfold a plan to craft a horrible world into something beautiful. Today, we just get to see the start of God's work in Jacob, and so we don't get to see too much of the progress. And we're going to see two stories in Jacob's life that, in some ways, are actually very similar to each other. We heard one of them read. We're going to jump forward a little bit to another one. Each story, though, it starts with a problem. And if you uh, want to, we'll be in chapter 25. We see the first problem in verse 23 in chapter 25. Now, Rebecca, she's been married to Isaac for 20 years, but she hasn't been able to fall pregnant in all that time. But when Isaac prays for her, God allows her to get pregnant, but things aren't going that smoothly. She's getting kicked and and whacked from the inside, and she's concerned about what's going on. This isn't just first-time mum paranoia that's going on here either. She's wondering what is wrong with this baby, so much so that somehow she inquires of God what's going on. And here we're introduced to a much bigger problem than a hyperactive fetus. Look at verse 23 with me. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The brothers are going to fight, and only one of them is going to continue the line of blessing that that started with Abraham and passed on to Isaac, only one of them is going to belong to God's people. And it's not going to be the way that people back then would have expected it to go. Rebecca, she's not told why this will be the case. And the answer actually has multiple layers to it. But over the course of this story, we get to see some of these layers being exposed. But before the story gets fully going, we learn that Rebecca and Isaac, they don't help this problem at all. So when the babies are born, 
one's hairy. So he gets called Esau, which in the Hebrew sounds like hairy. So hairy is Sayar in Hebrew. So they call him Asar. This would be like one of us having a, a, a baby that was really hairy and going, I know, let's call him Harry. That'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? And then the twin, at some point in, the, in, the, in being born, grabs hold of, of Esau's heel. And so he gets called Jacob, because heel is our cave, and Jacob is Yah cave. And to make things even more awkward, to grab someone's heel is actually an idiom in Hebrew, kind of like our idiom, underhanded. It means to be a deceiver. Now, I don't think we're supposed to read this and think, wow, these parents are great. I mean, Isaac's dad jokes must have been fantastic if he could come up with this kind of material. I think we're supposed to read this and go, something's a bit out of place with this family. They're a bit odd. I mean, what kind of parents call their kids Harry and the Deceiver? Or Harry and Con, if you like. (laughs) The answer is not very good parents. Something's wrong with this family. Look at verse 27. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The problem is that there's going to be a family breakdown between these two brothers, and at best, Isaac and Rebekah make it worse by their favoritism. But more likely, they're a big part of its cause. Isaac's going for Esau, and with good reason too. He's the one who brings home the wild, tasty game. Now, from this short description of Esau that we have there, you get the feeling that he makes Bear Grylls look like a bit of a pansy. Esau's a real man. He's hairy, so hairy that some of us men here should feel ashamed to call ourselves men. Later we hear he smells like a field. This guy, he could bench press Chris Castellin easily, but he wouldn't be doing it indoors with, you know, nice, pretty, shiny weights in an air-conditioned gym. He'd be out in the mud, bench pressing a dead deer that he just caught with his bare hands. Okay, I'm going a little bit too far, but you get the idea. This guy is a brute. He's a bit of a beast. But that's not his problem, actually. His problem isn't that he's uncouth and uncultured, you know, that he doesn't know his lattes from his affogatos. That's that's not his problem. His big problem is that he is a man led by his appetites. And Isaac is barracking for Team Esau because he's kind of similar to Esau, actually. And we'll see why, why this is a problem a bit later in the story. Rebecca, on the other hand, though, she's going for Team Jacob. And we're not told why. Maybe it's because of the prophecy, or maybe it's because of the kind of man he is. You get a bit of a description of, of Jacob too in verse 27. Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. This makes it sound like he's kind of a quiet, inside mummy's boy. And, and maybe that's slightly there, but... Rather than being a quiet gentleman, the idea is more that he's a civilized man. Civilized in the sense of well-behaved. The word that's there can actually even mean blameless, which 
would be really strange to be talking about Jacob that way, given what he does next. The point is more that he's not like Esau. He's not a brute ruled by his appetites. If anything, he's ruled by his cunning. And Rebecca is similar. And we'll see why this is a, is a, a problem a bit later in the story too. So we've got two different parents backing two different kids. It's a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly what we see unfold in these two parallel stories. We see a hunt gone wrong, a messed up meal, and a birthright switched. Look at chapter 25, verse 29 with me. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. Jacob's cunning, so he says, first sell me your birthright. Back then, the the firstborn son would receive double the inheritance of the other sons. Now imagine that. Imagine your older brother, if you've got one. Imagine he was going to receive twice as much as you. I mean, older brothers already feel like they rule the roost. They don't need anything else to add to their ego. But now imagine that older brother was born just moments after you were born. It seems so unfair. And so Jacob, when he sees the, the tiniest sliver of an opportunity to, to get this birthright, he has a go. And amazingly, Esau seems to take the bait. He says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Esau seems to be one of those men who can't tell hunger from a terminal illness. He's tired and he's hungry, yes, but he's not dying. I mean, dying people don't talk so much. Esau seems to completely lack all self-control. For him, being hungry right now, his appetite right now is the most important thing. And so Jacob exploits Esau's stupidity. Look at verse 33. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Lentil stew. Basically, Esau gave up his birthright for baked beans on toast. Literally. And the narrator tells us exactly what all of this means. Verse 24. So Esau despised his birthright. This is a big part of the reason why the older will serve the younger. This is one of the layers to the answer. Esau didn't value his birthright. He didn't value it to the point that he ended up despising it. Now, don't miss what's going on here. Esau, he was in line to inherit more than just a double share from Isaac, more than just 400 sheep instead of 200 sheep. He was in line to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to the whole world, to be a part of God's family. And he chose lentil, lentils over that. He let his appetite blind him to what really matters in this life and what really matters for all eternity. Now, we'll come back to what this says to us in a minute. But first, let's jump to the parallel story which Christine read for us before. In this story, we see another problem and we see another hunt gone wrong another messed up meal, and then finally, a blessing switched. 
Have a look again at verse 34. Well, actually, we haven't seen this verse yet. Verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Ellen, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, here's the next problem. And again, the problem is division in the family. Esau takes multiple wives for himself from the people of the land. When he's, he's supposed to be lead, leading a family that will be quite different to the people of the land, radically different to the people of the land. He's supposed to be leading God's own people. But he's not interested in that. His appetite is more for the local pagan women who have their own gods and no interest in the one true God. Esau doesn't seem to care that he's endangering his family, even knowing the name of the one true God. Even giving a stuff at all about God, he doesn't seem to care. Before this family has even got off the ground, before this intervention, God's intervention in the world has even got off the ground, Jacob doesn't seem to care that he's endangering it. And so again, the problem is division amongst God's people. And again, we see Esau's godlessness. We see his immediate appetites winning the day. He doesn't really care about God's promises and God's plans for the future. And Isaac doesn't seem to be much better. He lets his love for Esau blind him to the truth. He wants Esau to carry on God's name and blessing even though Esau has clearly demonstrated how godless he really is. And so, here we come to another hunt gone wrong, another messed up meal, and a blessing switched. Now, as we heard before, Isaac's old at this point, and he wants to bless Esau before he dies. He's literally blind, as well as turning a blind eye to what's going on. And it seems that he and Esau, they think that they can separate the birthright from the blessing, from God's blessing somehow. And so he says to Esau in verse 3, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. So like Esau, Isaac's a man led by his appetite. And he ties the blessing with his love for wild game, rather than Esau's suitability to lead God's people. What makes Esau a suitable person to carry on? He's a great hunter. It's weird. Why does he do that? But in verse 5, we read that Rebecca's secretly listening in. And so in verse 9, she says to Jacob, go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. And notice that she tells Jacob to get not one, but two goats. How big is this man's appetite? Now Jacob at this point, he's not convinced by Rebekah's plan. Look what he says in verse 11. But my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Notice, Jacob, he's not particularly worried about deceiving his father. He's worried about getting caught here. And so Rebecca says to him in verse 13, My son, 
let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say, go and get them for me. And what we'll see later on is that in many ways, the curse really does fall on Rebecca. So they go ahead with their plan. Rebecca prepares the food. Jacob dresses in Esau's clothes. And in verse 16, we read she also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. You've got to think, how hairy is this guy? And then she sends Jacob in with the food to deceive his dad. Now let's just pause for a sec. Which team are you going for? Is it just me or does neither option seem particularly good at this point? I mean, there's one who doesn't especially value God's blessing. Well, he seems to want the gifts without the giver, Esau. And then there's one who wants to try and force God's blessing and is happy to tear apart his family in the process. It's not pretty. But don't forget this. There's a difference between being godless and being ungodly. There's a world of difference. It's the difference between not really giving a stuff about God versus not living consistently with the God that we want to know. But let's get back to our story and see what happens. Jacob goes in and he offers the food to his father, but there's a problem straight up. His dad says in verse 20, How did you find the game so quickly, my son? And without missing a beat, Jacob says, The Lord your God gave me success. He's good at this deception stuff, isn't he? He's quick. But do you see the irony in what he says? The Lord your God gave me success. Jacob's not relying on God to give him success at all. He's relying on his own cunning. Jacob is taking matters into his own hands and he dares to drag the name of God into his deception. But it seems Isaac isn't convinced. He's old and he's blind, but something doesn't feel quite right. Maybe it's that Esau would never have said such a thing. God gave me success. Whatever the case, Isaac is a man of his senses and so he wants to feel that this is Esau and he wants to smell that this is Esau. And when he does feel the goat's hair and smells his garments, finally he blesses Jacob in verse 29. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Jacob has wrestled Esau And it seems like he's won. But at what cost? Look at verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And when Rebekah hears of Esau's plan, she tells Jacob to flee to her brother, Laban. And she says in verse 45, when your brother's no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? And here's the tragic irony again. She does. She loses both of her sons in one day. One hates her, no doubt. One has to flee for his life. Her family's torn apart. 
with no one happy in the end. You have brother against brother. You have got son against mother, husband against wife. And Rebecca, she never sees her favorite son again. Her meddling and her scheming cost her greatly. And in many ways, the curse really did fall on her because of what she did. This is a tragic and a horrible story. God had promised great things to Jacob before he was even born. But for some reason, he he grasps at them desperately with his own hands by deception at great cost to himself. He suffers greatly because unlike his grandfather, Abraham, Jacob, he doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust his provision. He trusts his cunning. But as we'll see over the weeks, through his suffering and even through his deceiving, God wrestles Jacob to make him into something new. So what should we take away from what we've seen of Jacob's story so far? Now you can imagine an Israelite a couple of thousand years ago, thousand years ago or something like that, reading or hearing this story and being unimpressed. Abraham was okay, yeah, but Jacob, he's not great. He's a bit horrible. And that's exactly right. Jacob is not great building material. But there is no one in this world who is great building material. But think about what that says about the God who can build something extraordinary out of such ordinary materials. Underneath all the layers... The reason Jacob would be blessed by God is simply because of God's choice. God chose Jacob. God chose to bless him. And God works out his choice despite Jacob's deceit, despite Jacob's lack of trust, despite Jacob's petty and destructive behavior. And even through these things, because that's the kind of God he is. And that's incredibly good news for ordinary people like us. Incredibly good news. God doesn't sit back and wait for us to get our act together before He steps in and acts in our life. That would never happen. God builds for Himself a people out of flawed people, a family. Now this is what Genesis is all about. This is what the whole Bible is all about from the household of Jacob right through, God chisels his way down till eventually he comes to just one, to one who is perfect building material. A son not godless like Esau or or grasping like Jacob, but a son who perfectly obeys him. A son who rather than selfishly grasping at greatness becomes the servant of all. God builds his household through Jesus, his own son. And the truly amazing thing is that we can be adopted into this household. Even though if we're honest, we're not great building material. We're not. I can't help but feel sorry for Esau. I don't know about you. In some ways, it's kind of hard to empathize with him. I think I I lack his physique and, and hairiness and raw masculinity. But when it comes to what he did, 
I could absolutely picture myself there. I could imagine allowing some immediate desire to cause me to look at what God has, has got to offer and think, nah, I need this more right now. Could you imagine doing that? For Jewish people, as they heard this story, they, they would have heard loud and clear, do not despise your birthright. But actually, we should hear this even louder and even clearer. Because unlike them, we're not the people of God by being born into the people of God. If we belong to God, it's only because He's adopted us into His family. And so we have all the more reason to cherish our place among the people of God. And yet even still, I can picture myself in Esau's shoes. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, thousands of years later, makes it very clear that this is a real possibility for all of us. Look at what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. Even, even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Esau's fault was that he was godless. He wasn't interested in God. He was steered by his appetites for food and for sex, for pale parallels of the blessings that God pours out. Now, there's nothing wrong with those appetites, but there sure is something wrong with letting them steer you away from what God has to offer. But is there really anyone among us who can't sympathize with him? I mean, hasn't every person on this planet felt that the things of this world are more real, more urgent, more needed, more satisfying than this vague idea of knowing God and knowing the blessings and promises that He has for us? Haven't we all felt that we're better off acting now, enjoying now, making the most of now, choosing what we want, what we need right in this moment, rather than choosing what God promises? Our world is absolutely full of people who've chosen these things over God. Adelaide is full of people who've chosen these things over God. It's tragic. They have no idea what they're missing out on. But inside these walls too, inside the hearts of each one of us, we face exactly the same battle. Only we've seen clearly the inheritance that we have in Christ. And so it's all the more tragic if we despise what's ours. No matter how good it is, whether it's living for a relationship or sport or sex or career or even kids, whatever it is, if we choose it over God, it's, it's like choosing lentil soup. It just can't compare. Now, if you grew up in a house that knows Jesus, you grew up hearing about Jesus then I think this is especially important for you to hear. It's very easy, as, as we said to the kids, to take amazing things for granted when you've always known them. Have you always known that God loves you? Have you always known that Jesus died for you? But do you find yourself thinking, yep, that sounds about right. So he should, that's his job. Or do you ever find yourself thinking, yep, yeah, it's, it's amazing, but it's also kind of boring? When you take something for granted, 
It's just one more step to find yourself despising it. Don't do it. Wake up if that's you. And whether you've always known this, what Jesus has done or not, don't despise what God is offering you. On Friday, I was reading a book called The Imperfect Disciple. And the writer says this. He says, Jesus got sweaty and dirty and bloody and he took all of the sin and mess of the world onto himself, onto the cross to which he was nailed naked. In his work and in his words, Jesus is making promises to the beaten, the torn, the broken, the depressed, the desperate, the poor, the orphan, the abandoned, the cheated, the betrayed, the accused, the left behind. He is, believe it or not, promising to fix it all. Can we really take that for granted? Could we really choose to fulfill some temporary appetite instead of waiting for when Jesus will fix it all? This week I I saw briefly an old friend, Dave, who lost his first wife to cancer in her 20s, when they were both in their 20s. Jesus is promising that we'll inherit a world where sickness is not even possible. He's promising to fix it all. This year, the government in the UK appointed a minister for loneliness. Apparently, 13% of the UK feel lonely all the time, 13%. And get this, about 200,000 older people in the UK haven't even had a conversation with a friend or a family member in the last month. Imagine that. Jesus promises that we will inherit a world where loneliness is just not possible. He's promising to fix it all. Now, I could go on all day, but the very best of what we will inherit is that we will be with Jesus forever, our Creator, our Saviour, our friend. What could possibly compare? Nothing. Any appetite that we would satisfy by turning our back on what God offers is just lentil stew. But it seems to me the reality is either we value our birthright above all else or we risk finding ourselves one day waking up and despising it. Sometimes you've got to go hungry. It's better in the long run. Hunger, it's not a terminal condition. But believe me, despising what we have in Jesus, God's birthright, that is. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that because of Jesus, you're a God who takes ordinary material like us and you change us. You build us into your family, into your kingdom. Lord, you work in us to change us in this life and when Jesus returns, we will be completely transformed to be like him. Father, your love and your kindness is out of this world completely. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to never despise what it is that we have in Jesus. Lord, help us as we wrestle with the appetites of this life, 
that we would recognize that it is so much better to have you, the giver of every gift, than any gift. Lord, help us to be patient, to go hungry now when we need to, knowing and trusting that you will fix it all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.